0: This is Caleb, and I am so honored that you decided to spend a few minutes your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by George Yancey, and today we're going to be talking about uh, his brand new book called Beyond Racial Division, a Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. And you know, we're going to talk about, uh, I'll dive into that a little bit more, but if this happens to be your first time. Uh, listening to the podcast, I do want to let you know that there's really two things that drive a lot of what we do here on the Learner's Corner. The first one is this: is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone, and from everyone, and from anything, and from everything, regardless of whether or not we agree with someone 100, uh, or whether or not we see eye to eye on the issue or the topic that we're discussing. As well, we believe that there's uh, something, even if that's just one thing, that we can learn from everyone and from you know, from anyone as well. And sometimes that, you know, sometimes what we learn from people is an example to follow. And another times we learn from people or what we learn from people is a, is a warning to pay attention to as well, because of the failures or the mistakes that may, that they made. And another times, you know, as I mentioned, we can learn from the good things that they did and we can learn from them in that. But the second thing is this, is that we truly want to create a place to where we could have uh you know we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations because you can't just have conversations with anybody because you know and you've you've you know that it's well too because of you know the, the the different reactions that you've seen from people in that and so what we're talking what we're going to talk about today though it really hits on those two core beliefs you know a lot of the time you know they'll either hit on, you know, one or maybe another of those things. And today we really hit both of them. Um, and, and so that's why I was so, and let me, let me tell you a little bit. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, you know, today I'm talking with George Yancey, and I was so excited uh, to talk with him about this because it is a, uh, it's a little bit of a different take. Um, Maybe maybe it won't be if you listen to it, but for me it was. You know, one of the things that he talks about, you know, and it's mentioned in the subtitle, is um, is you know, a lot of what's been talked about over the past couple of years is is anti-racism, and he says you know that that there are some good things in that, but it is not the best approach whenever uh, it pertains to having these discussions. And so we're going to get into that in a little bit, uh, and I'll let him explain that. More, but let me introduce him and then we'll jump into the conversation. George Yancey is a professor at the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University, specializing in race, slash, ethnicity, and religion. He works to promote uh, collaborative communication as a solution to racial unrest. He is the author, or co author, or co editor of books such as Compromising Scholarship, One Faith No Longer, There Is No God, Hostile Environment, and many others as well. And so, With that, we're not going to wait any longer. Here's my conversation with George Yancey. George, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to talk about a lot today is your brand new book, uh, Beyond Racial Division. But before we dive into that, one of the things that I uh, would love to ask your thoughts and your perspective and is that you've been, you know, doing research and studying around you know, race and racism um, for for decades now. And mm. I would just love to hear from your perspective um, what is the stuff that is happening right now to where you're like, Hey, this, this isn't a new thing. Like this is stuff in conversations that have been happening for a while. And then, um, on the, on the other side of it is, Hey, this, this is actually like a new perspective or a new, um, a new thinking on, on what is
1: happening right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as what, what has happened and what continues to happen is what I call a cycle of, you know, we're in the middle of the cycle where we'll have a racial incident, then we'll have a protest, counter-protest, and then normalcy. Like we're not talking a lot about racial stuff. Then we're kind of in that normalcy cycle, waiting for some racial incident to happen to where we get a protest, counter-protest, and normalcy again. And it goes on and on and on. So uh, I think that that has just been, I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember Rodney King when, when that happened. And I, I didn't catch on the time that there was a cycle, but that's what tends to happen. Is Ronnie King? You have to protest, counter-protest, and then normalcy, and then you have something else. So that's sort of that's sort of what we're going to keep having unless we do something to potentially break that cycle. Uh, you know, as far as new out there, uh, I don't think there's a lot of new ideas that are being pushed. I, I like to think that mine is is new in the sense of. It being really addressing racial issues, but it's not new in that we know that when we have the ways we can have dialogue that's productive, it's just that we've chosen not to with concerns, racial issues for a variety of reasons.
0: Yeah. And uh, is there anything else that you're seeing right now? I mean, you mentioned the cycle and you talk a lot about that in the book as well. Is there Mm -hmm. anything else to where um, like we are treating it like, Hey, this is, this is something that we've never faced before or. Um, or something like that, and it's like, no, this that isn't the case. We've seen this before,
1: or anything like that. Yeah, you know, like I hear people will talk about, well, 2020 was a watershed moment mm-hmm. that we had you know, the Albury, the Alberry killing and the uh, Floyd killing, and the, you know, we saw the protests and and people say this is a watershed moment. I will grant that you know it got a lot of attention, but. We've had things like this happen before, you know, when, when we had uh, the kid who was killed over i Skittles. Now, now his name escapes me off the top of my head. I mean, uh, I just brought out, you know, the, uh, the Rodney King beating. He wasn't killed, but the Rodney King beating. That seemed like a watershed moment. So people are always saying, this is a watershed moment. We're really going to do something, go forward. And then five years later, we look back and we sort of, you know, besides in this racial conflict have just hardened and we really have not made a lot of progress. So yeah, I don't think there's a lot of new under the sun and there won't be until we intentionally change our, the dynamics of that are creating this racial alienation.
0: Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, you, you get into, uh, later in the book, you get into a lot of stuff where like, act, like actionable things that we can do. Um, yeah. but before uh, we get that, I kind of want to tease out, uh, some more of, uh, of the, the problem and what what causes that. And even some of the alternative um, spots or alternative approaches that you say, hey, we we tried this approach, but it doesn't work as well. Um, but before that, I also know that you have a background in sociology. Uh, yes. And so any, anytime that we're able to, I would I would just love your thoughts on what are the sociological factors as it pertains to race and racism and everything that we're seeing right now that um that maybe for those of us who don't understand sociology as well um won't see how they're playing to today and how they're affecting us.
1: Yeah, well here's the way to think about it. Okay, so everyone acknowledges that for for centuries we lived in a horrible racial situation. You know, where whites basically have power over non-whites, and they use that power to create structures to help them out. There's, there's no one denies that. Where the sociology comes in is that even though today the, the attitudes t- towards us has dramatically changed, anyone who says otherwise is, you know, they're, they're not living in reality. They're living in some other world. You know, the attitude towards each other has dramatically changed. There's a lot of research show, showing that there's a lot more racial tolerance. In fact, you will be stigmatized if you're thought as a racist today, whereas 50 years ago you would have not been stigmatized. So there's been a big change. But those structures still remain. So, I think about it this way uh, white people for centuries looked down upon non whites and created social structures that gave them advantage over non whites. Let's say 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, there was more of a more watershed moment where people you know, that's wrong. You know, it's wrong for us to think less of people who are not white. And so attitudes really did change, but those structures stay in place. The question is, how do we address some of those structures that were developed over our centuries of racial abuse and move forward in a way that people can see as fair? And so one one answer is not ignoring that. We can't ignore those structures, they're there. But the other answer isn't some sort of revenge. For example, we can't say that, well, we've had 400 years of, of slavery of whites to Blacks. So to be fair, let's have 400 years of whites slaves to Blacks. We know that that's not the answer either. Now, that's an extreme. What I'm saying is that there's, there's some, somewhere in the middle that we're going to have to find those answers. And that's a lot of what I'm about, is how do we find those answers that we can work together to find, not one group dictating the answers to the other, we can work together to find. So that we can move forward. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit.
0: How how do you begin uh to talk about those things, especially whenever you have one perspective so far? Uh, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you have the um, you know, there is no uh structural racism. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end, you do have the um, you know, as you were saying, like the the revenge or hey, we need to um yeah, you know, that perspective. How how do you begin to a- address that stuff with people who are on on both sides?
1: Sure. So here's what I've come to sort of realize, is that there's probably about 20 percent of the country that is so wedded to what I would call a colorblind perspective that, you know, we're going to ignore race and and that's a solution, that right now it's hard to have a healthy conversation. There's about 20 percent of the country that's so wedded to what what has been called an anti-racist perspective that right now it's hard to have a healthy conversation with them. So my belief is we have to start with that 60 percent that they may favor one or the other, but they're open to a conversation. And we begin to have a conversation with us 60 percenters who are open to a healthy conversation. And eventually we'll drag that other 40 percent with us. So we got to start where we're at. And one of the things that's discouraging, and I've I've learned the hard way, is that if someone's not ready for the conversation, they're just hitting your head against the wall trying to have it with. But I think most people want that. I think a lot of people, in fact, I know there's a lot of people out there who are frustrated because they know racism is a real problem. They just can't ignore it. But the solutions that have been given to them, they know do, do not work either. And so we've got to find new solutions. Yeah,
0: let's talk about, you know, engaging with the 60%. I think one of the things um, that that I've noticed in my own life is the 40, like the 40% is so loud that you're afraid of like saying yeah. anything at all. Right. And so how do you, like, how do you even begin those conversations? Like, is it as simple as, you know, Hey, you just got to, you know, have the courage to go through it or what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, you know, at one level, you know, at a more micro level, it's us as individuals having, having a different perspective as we're these conversations, you no know, respecting those that we may disagree with and, and that. So there's, one, there, there's a micro level perspective. But you're right, that 40%, you know, that 40% on all the talk shows, they're the ones who, who get the airtime because, you know, the news media loves the controversy and they love the outspoken, loud folks who are pushing their points. And so, yeah, that, that they're there. So how do you overcome that? I think it's going to take a while. I'm under no impression that we're going to instantly do that. But I do think that what we can do is start forming organizations that are promoting more constructive dialogue, collaborative conversations, if you will. We can start doing more research on how these can work, and how they can work better. We can start uh, teaching our kids how to have more collaborative conversations. I have three boys myself—a six, five, and three-year-old—and so my wife and I we talk about how do we how do we teach them the truth about race, but also how to have conversations. You know, I think we're going to have to start trying to build our own momentum, you know, and and at times say to others, look, you know, if you're not willing to hear out others, you don't even understand where others are coming from. Why should we look to you for answers? We got to try, you know, try to start finding answers within the church. Uh, Our churches have to do a better job of having this dialogue. So we start wherever we can. And I my belief is when people see that you can successfully have conversations and lead to productive outcomes, a lot of that 60% will start changing their minds and maybe we can then become more vocal. But yes, it's gonna take a while. I'm I'm under no illusion it's gonna happen overnight.
0: Yeah. Um. One of the things that I wanted wanted to ask you about, and as as much as you're you're comfortable, I would love your thoughts on. You know, you mentioned talking about the your your wife and you talking about with your kids and this, mm-hmm. and that's something that like I think about. You know, I'm I'm a former student pastor, and thinking about man, how do we engage like difficult conversations like this with kids who you know they have perspectives all across. Yeah. You know, all of the thing. Um, how do you engage with those types of conversations with um, students? or kids, whether they be your own or whether they be just kids that you care about?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's a good question, which I don't have a great answer for at this point in time. Hmm. Uh, You know, my wife and I, we're looking for resources. Um, I can say at this point, because our boys are so young, we're at the stage of awareness right now. I mean, I I want to teach them eventually how to have good conversations people they disagree with. But we're not even close to being that because my oldest is six years old. Yeah. and so, right now we're at a stage of awareness. We're going to Juneteenth programs. We're we're buying books to to let them be aware of our history, uh, and and that's where they, that's where they need. Maybe at some point when you know, if we successfully raise these boys to really engage in this conversation, we'll write a book on that. What we did right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're just I'm just trying to find material right now that would be very helpful. Yeah, I think uh, even though you
0: said that you're you know, still working it out. I think even just the awareness piece is a huge part of it. Too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. You just got me thinking on that of like, I think sometimes we can underestimate the awareness piece of it and that that's where stuff starts. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, you know, the, the two other approaches that, you know, we tend to do is uh, colorblindness and a- anti-racism as well, I would love for you to tease out kind of why why are those um, why are
1: those approaches not like adequate enough?
0: But at least from sure. your perspective.
1: Okay, well, I'll start with colorblindness. Yeah, um, colorblindness is the notion that okay, the best way to deal with racism is to ignore race. That if I don't see your race, then I cannot mistreat you because of your race. So the more we can ignore race, the more moral of person we are. The, the better of a person we are at dealing with racial issues. In theory, that sounds great. I mean, in theory, when you think about our history and how people were mistreated, that sounds great. But colorblindness only works if we have a fair society. If we have a society where people are at a disadvantage because of institutions, structures, traditions that are often unspoken, you know, it's not Jim Crow, it's not reservations, it's, you know, it's not that sort of stuff. So it's not stuff that you see, but it's still... Worse or disadvantages. And there's research shows that we do have in this society. You know, things such as driving while black is a reality. Uh, the differential treatment from healthcare professionals to people of color, that's a reality. There's the criminal justice system. There's research that shows that even if people are not overtly racist, people of color operate at a disadvantage. So to ignore that is to ignore the disadvantages of people of color. And you will never heal that wound by ignoring it. Anymore, you'll heal a cut in your arm by ignoring it. We have to intentionally do something about it. And codewinders fails because it says, don't do anything. Just ignore it. Ignore race, ignore the effects of racism. Yeah. So that doesn't work. Uh, anti-racism, I think, is a, is a laudable attempt to try to say, we got to do something. And one of the reasons, one of the ways I prepared for, for my book was, you know, I read about these things at a scholarly level and, and read theories and stuff. I was, well, what is your common person on the street reading about anti-racism? So I read six or seven anti-racism books. Uh, you know, I read, of course, the big two, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist and, and uh, White Fragility. I also wrote, you know, Me and me and White Supremacy, uh, so, you, so You Want to Talk About Race. You know, so I read so I read about five or six books. It was six or seven, something like that. And what was interesting was there are certain themes that came up in these books, even though they express them in a different ways. And two of the things are really good. You know, one theme is that racism is a problem that's systematic, it's not just individual, it's throughout our system, it's multi-layered. Yes. Another is we have to be very intentional in tackling romantic racism. We have to intentionally try to uh, deal with it. We can't just ignore it. We have to be proactive. Once again, I'm like, score, that's, that's smart. But then there's that 13, which really ran through all the books and just mapped itself in different ways was, was what the problem was. The 13th was the role of white people is to do what people of color say. Now, that, the way it was expressed varied, but basically it came down to that. And as soon as I realized that, I realized this is the problem of anti-racism today. Because if that's what we're teaching, That all whites are to do is do what people of color want. Well, as a Christian, first off, I know that that misses the mark of human depravity, and we people of color have human depravity too. And I think that we wouldn't misuse power is just unrealistic. But even if I wasn't a Christian, you know, theories of confirmation bias, there is a group interest theory, uh, would suggest that when you give a group of people power, they eventually will misuse it for their own end. That's not going to work in the interim long-term situation. And research has shown that it's not working. Research has shown that diversity programs do not in the long-term reduce prejudice, which has shown that a lot of times these programs actually create a backlash. Uh, research on how do we change attitudes have shown that you know, people resist when you tell them what to do. So these books telling people what to do, you know, unless a person already is, has to feel a certain amount of guilt, they're going to resist it. So anti-racism eventually fails because it's not effective. And it's not effective because of I think that third tenet really gets in the way of it. And so that's why, you know, both of these, I think, will not work.
0: Like even, even just you explaining that. It helps now, for both the colorblindness and for the anti-racism racism approach from my perspective. Um, it makes sense why they're so attractive because there is good parts to it. Mm. Like you were saying, like for colorblindness, um, that that maybe should be how it operates, but we don't live in that world yeah. <laughs> right now. And the same, um, yeah, it just, I was just thinking about that. That Maybe that's why, uh, I don't know if they could be so, They're very, that's why they're very attractive because there's parts of them that yeah. work really well.
1: Um, yeah, were you going to say something? Yeah, yeah, and I'll just say that you know there are times in my life where I'm colorblind. You know, I'm grading papers. I don't look at the race of my students because that's not going to factor into their grades. There are times in my life where I'm anti-racist. So it's not that these things have no redeeming value, but as an overarching philosophy, they fail. Yeah, uh, and that leads to you know the
0: the approach that you talk about as well, which is mutual accountability. Would you mind unpacking that and what that is?
1: Sure. So you know the key to the mutual accountability approach is that everybody, regardless of your race, your perspective, has is responsible for for engaging in a productive conversation. Uh, where the solution may come out, everyone is responsible for making the conversation productive. And to do that, we have to learn how to communicate with one another and how to listen to one another. So whereas in the other two approaches, people have fashioned these solutions and say, if you all buy into our solutions, we'll have rush of harmony. What my approach is, we need to fashion the solutions in conversation and in community with each other. And it has to be a productive community. It cannot be a monologue. It must be a dialogue or a trial log just, you know, Whatever, how many logs do you need? It has to be that many logs. Everyone has to have a seat at the table. Some people fear that this will create solutions that are that are colorblind-ish. But I don't have that fear. Now, I admit that, you know, you could have some solutions that are that way because everything's on the table. And sometimes maybe that's the best solution. But what I think is going to happen we have that honest dialogue is that given our our racial history and given some of the pernicious effects of racism, I think solutions are going to recognize that. But what they're not going to do is force it down someone's throat and, and create this sort of backlash effect that we see so often. And it's not going to make people become uh, more hesitant to engage because they're going to feel like they're just going to be shamed into accepting something they don't want to accept. So this is, the, the I think, the core difference from my perspective and others. I'm not offering, I'm not saying, hey, here's what you do, and then we'll all we'll figure it out. I'm saying, let's have a conversation and figure out what to do together.
0: You know, one, one of the thoughts that I had just as while you're talking about is I'd be curious to hear if you're, if you're calling, if you're coming from the color blind blind perspective, what might be like your resistance to mutual mm-hmm. accountability and then like the same for anti-racism. Like if you're coming from that perspective, what might sure. be like the resistance that you uh, might be encountering to this, yeah. you know, mutual accountability.
1: And the main thing I hear from colorblind people is that I'm creating problems because I'm bringing up race. So, you know, if I, if I bring up the topic of race, then that is self-sacrifice. Even if I tell, even if I want to talk about how do I raise my boys as, you know, to be good, to be good black men, even though I'm internationally married, but how do I deal with the racial issues with them and, 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 and acknowledge that their blackness is part of who they are, that some people who are colorblind go, why even bring up black? Just really be good men and ignore the racial part. Bring up race is treating the problems of racism. That is what, that is a big pushback I get from the third-white perspective. Uh, the, you know, the pushback I've gotten from anti-racists, I think it's kind of twofold. I, you know, I've had some who say that it's not fair, real color, to have to engage in these conversations due to their pain and hurt. Uh, you know, and then I've had some say that, uh, that my approach is too nice to whites. So... So I think that I have to address both of those. Uh, whether it's fair or not, I think that's, there's an argument there, but life is just that way. In other words, I cannot expect people to understand my perspective if I'm not willing to engage in a conversation in a way that they can hear me. I, I don't have the luxury of saying, look, you know, you have to take the." And, and I've actually heard this in the internet, Richard. you know, don't tone police me. Let me say how, what I want to say, how I want to say it, and you have to accept that. Well, that's just not reality. Research shows it's not reality. If you approach people in a way that's threatening, they literally cannot hear you from that point on. It's not that they don't want you, they cannot hear you. So we can't say, we can say whatever we want, however we want, and why just have to accept that? Well, that's just not reality. If you want to reach people, you have to talk to them in ways that they can hear you. So you know, you, you may feel good doing things like that, but it doesn't do good to do things like that. And so, and so the complaint that this is not fair, maybe it's not fair, but you know, there's a lot that's not fair to do them anyways, because that's what we have to do in order to get done. You know, it, it, it's not fair that I get five hours of sleep because I'm raising three boys right now, but you know, that that's just reality. I just have come to accept, um, you know, as far as being too nice, um, uh, when people have heard me give talks, you know, I generally critique both, but I could I definitely critique the notion of colorblindness. I definitely challenge whites to uh, to stop ignoring racial issues and to become part of this. I don't think anyone who's sitting in a class for me can say, well, you know, he let whites off the hook the whole the whole time. But what I won't do and what I refuse to do is to humanize whites. Uh, I will not. Say, well, you have no role in this other than do what I want. No, that's your role is to basically, you know, you're you are to obey me. Uh I won't I won't reduce whites to to a racialized stereotype uh that that shows them the worst possible light. I, I don't think that I'm called to dehumanize people. Now, if I must dehumanize others, for you to say that I am not too nice, then the cost you're asking to pay is much too high. I'd rather engage in conversations that I hope that have a chance of being productive. And since research has shown that this is the best way to actually change people's perspectives, I have a better chance of changing the attitude of a white person than those who engage with an anti-racist perspective. I'm not gonna change, I'm, you know, it's not a hundred percent, Trust me, I've had plenty of misses, but I've also had plenty of successes from people who don't typically, typically fall into wanting to do some racial issues. So I'm I'm satisfied with what I'm doing because I rather I actually want results and not just to say something that makes someone say, okay, well, I finally got my one-ups on this, on these white people. i rather, I'd rather not get the one-up on the white people. I'd rather change their perspectives and let them see a different, uh, idea of what can work out and try to find solutions that meet their needs too, as well as mom. Yeah. Can you,
0: uh, you know, tease out, like when whenever you are having those conversations, like what do you do to prepare and like, what have you learned about, mm. um, h- how to make sure that these conversations go well, yeah. or at least as, well, as far as it depends on
1: you. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm. Um, you know, first, you know, I'm I'm learning more and more to wait for the right conversations. You know, and a person really, I mean, I, I usually have a couple of ways of finding out is this person really open to discussing this, or are they, are they just, you know, are going to sit back and say change my mind and 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 they really don't have any openness to it. And, you know, in which case? Because I want to end these conversations open as well. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, you know, maybe I need to learn from you. So I don't want to, I don't, to me, this is not just, I'm here teaching you. I mean, I want to have a mutual conversation as well, but if we're, if you're not going to be mutual about it, then why should I? Um, what I find is, you know, i guys get the language of the listener. And uh, so here's what I know from having listened to whites. And that's important. The key is you listen to other people. Most whites, the vast majority of whites today, are not racist in the way that we think of racism, in that they don't think of Blacks as inferior to whites or Hispanics as inferior to whites, that's right. And, and I believe that they're, they're being honest. I don't think that they're trying to just, they really believe it, but they're just telling me. Uh, you know, seen so too much evidence that they really don't believe that. But most whites today don't see the need to really be very proactive dealing with racial issues. So on the one hand, they are they're, they're not, racist in a traditional sense. On the other hand, they have a living let live kind of attitude. You know, you do your thing, I do my thing. Why should I, you know? So that's the framework that I, that I begin with. Also, when I'm dealing with Christian whites, that they have certain values, especially conservative Christian ones, they have certain values that I can touch upon. And so one of the things I used to use when I went to pretty conservative conferences or churches and spoke on racial issues was before I got into dealing with, you know, here's, here's some of the things that's having people of color. Here's how we got to consider things. I used to talk about this research that I once did. In this research, I used uh, personal advertisements on the internet, romantic advertisements. And without, get, without getting too wonkish or nerdy on, on what I did, I basically found out that among white Christians, that they're more open to dating someone of a different faith, in a different race, and so I would put that early in my presentation because I knew once I once I stated that that the what was happening to a lot of those whites out there was remembering that they're not overly racist. So if you give you gave them the question, do you want your son or daughter to marry a a black Christian or a white non-Christian? Even though they may prefer, they may have racial preferences, but they would absolutely say the black Christian because that was was important to them. And to hear that their kids is more likely to marry the white non Christian blew their mind. So now they're, they're like, okay, what's happened to create an atmosphere where our kids are more open to being someone with different faith than their race? This primes the poem, so they're willing to hear more. That's talking in the language of the listener, find out what's important to people and reaching them in ways that's important to them. Rather than me saying what I want to hear myself say, I want to talk to people in ways that they can hear me. And if they're open, I think I can find that out. If they're not open, then yes, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You you mentioned that you have,
0: uh, like, some ways for, like, figuring out whether or not someone is open or not. Would you mind sharing those?
1: Well, you know, uh, I, I think... You know, one of the thing's I, I'll, I'll probably point out a little bit of research about, for example, there's research showing that uh, that if, uh, if a black person, a Hispanic person, a white person apply for a job, the white person is more likely to get interviewed. Uh, These audit studies, and you know their reaction is things like that. I mean, one one reaction is like, okay, well, that's problematic. Is there more? I mean, if it sounds like that, then they're then they're open. But someone is say is here. Here's a classic example, and Christians know this when you deal with atheists. A lot of times, you can tell an atheist is open or not because if an atheist always has a reason why there's no evidence, and always says once more, more, and what the atheist demands is absolute proof. You know, at that point, you just be that person's friend because they're not open to having a discussion. Some of them are the reason whites that they're not really open to evidence. They, they want absolute, absolute proof to me that all, all of these other studies, that, that it, was, it was racism that was there, that it, you know, maybe maybe this person, uh, the black person acted a little bit differently. Or maybe, you know, there's things that I know are, is not really solid from a mythological perspective, but, it's, but it shows that they don't have absolute proof. Then that's usually a person that's looking for reasons not to agree with you, rather than looking for, are you possibly right? And once you see that, then that's someone that you know. It's just frustrating to have a conversation because they're they're not willing to be convinced, and they're not willing to be convinced. So that's sort of a way I feel out whether or not a person's really open to a conversation or not. Yeah. Uh, another
0: thing, and you you briefly mentioned it earlier that you introduced into the book, which um, which greatly challenged me because I hadn't really thought about it from this perspective. Is you talk about human depravity as well, yeah. and and the role that it it should play in this conversation, which mm. isn't talked about a whole lot. So I would just love for you to kind of tease out uh, yeah.
1: that. Yeah, so when I wrote this book, I wanted, I wanted a book that could cross over to non Christians. That You can give to your non-Christian friends and say, hey, here's a percentile race you hadn't heard before. Uh, you know, read this. So, but obviously I'm publishing the University Press, which is a Christian publisher. I'm publishing the Christians. And so I'm not ashamed to be the Christian. I think my Christianity has helped to shape my ideals on a lot of things, including my, my ideals on how I race. So I, I combine that into one chapter. I said, you know, early book, I say, you know, you're not a Christian, read this book, just skip this chapter. Uh, and that's the chapter you're talking about, human depravity chapter. Because ultimately, the nature of what, human, what humans are is very important. So if you believe that humans are perfectible, if you think that if we get the right environment, we have the right sanctions, We have the right encouragement. We can create a better human and we can create a uh, a utopia, per se. And this idea is not a foreign idea. If you look at what Marxism is, for example, the notion that we should have the revolution that will create this utopia. If you have that idea, it's your job to figure out what the utopia is and get everyone else convinced to do that. And both colorblindness and anti racism do exactly that and say, here's a solution, we'll solve this problem, we'll get everyone to agree with us, and thus to go about trying to do that. But I don't think that works because first, all of us have human depravity, so we are gonna construct solutions that work best for us. Even if we are trying to be fair, it's really hard to be completely fair because I'm an African-American man, and I'm gonna see things from a different perspective than you as a than you as a white man. So that's really hard. And second, because of human depravity, people don't wanna to be told what to do. And so you, if you go and you tell people this is what you have to do, a certain percentage is gonna resist that. And you're, the only way you can overcome that resistance is force. And then you get into power dynamics. And is that really a way we're gonna have healthy rest relations? Human depravity means that we all are fallen, that we all are limited in our vision. And thus in this side of heaven, probably the one of the best ways to gain more vision on, on relationships is to talk to other people. And from talking to friends of a, who are not black, uh, some of them white, some of them immigrants, because you know sometimes I miss things because my people are not, you know, first, second, third generation immigrants. And some of the challenges they have. I've missed some of those from, I didn't talk to them. I can gain an insight and I can also gain compassion for other people to want to work with them to find solutions that we can all agree with together. My desire to impose a solution on them once I understand human depravity is gone or or at least really reduced. Because I know imposing solutions doesn't work. My weaknesses are imposed upon them. they're going to resist the, that imposition. So yes, at the core of this is, he, is my notion of human depravity that the nature of humans is that we're not perfectible on this side of heaven. That we have to be approached in a way of here's our shortcomings, here's my shortcomings, here's your shortcomings, can be figure it all out? Rather than I have it all figured out, here's what you need to do.
0: Yeah. Can you, uh, like one of the one of the things that I was thinking about uh, While well, reading that part of the book was the tension that comes between imposing our own I- our own ideas and our own approaches versus um, you know for especially for us as uh, Christians and followers of Jesus of the ideal of like God's community and stuff and I would just be curious your thoughts on like how how do you balance that tension how do you tell the difference between like hey this this is actually you know God's standard or God's ideal for community versus you know this is my own idea
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no way I can 100% know that my standard is God's standard, okay? So, you know, I I have my beliefs, I have my concerns, I have things that I think are right. So, and I don't have a problem trying to convince others of that as long as I'm trying to do it in a way that's healthy and not shame and guilt-producing. And research has shown that that's the best way, that if we want to convince people, Look, I would love a society where we are trying to persuade each other of the best way to go, as long as we're doing it in a healthy way. Because your best way for persuading people is to build rapport with them, to be friends with them, to acknowledge when they're right, to to find common values, common beliefs. That's the best way. That builds community. Trying to convince people to do something through shaming them or, or producing guilt. That builds polarization. So as long as I'm trying to do it the right way, I don't have a problem trying to persuade people. This is my vision, and maybe if I do it that way, I may see things that I may learn things from them that says, "Oh, okay, well I thought about it that way. Maybe there's elements of your vision that we can try to incorporate as we try to head towards a a greater, greater vision of what we can be." Yeah. As
0: you know, as we're entering into these dialogues, what have you seen be things that? you know, you mentioned like and game or show, yeah, man, shame and guilt being things that like undercut the conversation that are able to happen. What are some other yeah. things that you've seen in conversation that it's like, hey, like you may not be meaning to do these things, but these things undercut your ability to have these fruitful dialogues and conversations.
1: Yeah, I think that we say things because we've not listened to others in ways that make put them in a shell make them unable to hear us. And, uh, for example, when a white person says to a person of color, I don't see race, okay? I've been around enough whites to know what they mean by that. And so this doesn't apply to me because I have thick skin anyways, I I used to referee in a real football game, so my skin is pretty thick. My skin is pretty thick. Uh, But the average person of color here is you don't see But When they hear, I don't see race, what they hear is, I don't see a very important part of your identity. It means nothing to me. And so for that person, that's a very threatening reality for them to encounter. And what research research says is that person is going to shut off. You literally will not be able to get through that person from that point on because you told them you don't see race even though your intention was not to be offensive or not to be dehumanizing, that's how they perceive it. Where if you listen to people of color, I think if most whites listen to people of color, they'll come to realize that that comment bomb well-meaning is inappropriate if you wanted to really try to deal with a person of color. So, you know, listening to people, I think is, is, is incredibly important to being able to, to handle, uh, these conversations. Now, it, it can happen the other way, too. You know, I hear people of color engage in conversation and talking about ending whiteness and talking about white supremacy. And they don't mean the plan talking about white supremacy. They're meaning, you know, things connected to, 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 to what they call whiteness. Now, I read the literature. You know, I, I, I've heard have people explain this out. I know that any whiteness is not a genocide or anything like that. But if you listen to white people, you realize that a lot of white people, you just lost them when you talk about, you know, how you all are engaging in white supremacy or engaging in racism. When that white person is thinking, I don't hate black people. How dare you think that I'm white supremacist? I don't need to, you know, I don't need to make this conversation any longer. I'll just sit here and and look like I'm listening to you. If you care about getting through to whites and care about dialoguing with them, you need to listen to them and find out ways that you can talk to them and they can hear you. And we need to stop blaming each other when, when we don't do that. I mean, if you're not going to spend the time to figure out how you can talk to someone so they can listen to you, then do you have a right to blame them when they can't hear you? you have a right to say, well, they don't care about me when they can't hear you, when you've not taken the time to figure out how to talk to them in ways that they can't hear you? That's what we have to do. And I know not everyone wants to hear that, but that's just the reality of our situation. Uh, another, another
0: statement that you have in there that got my attention so much is this is that, you know, you say, so the big question we must struggle with is this, how do we recover from our history of racial abuse in ways most of us consider to be fair? Um, I would be curious to hear like your thoughts on, Hey, what led you to like discovering that question and like making that statement? Like, Hey, this is the most important question for us to, to wrestle with together in those dialogues and conversations.
1: Yeah, you know, you know I, I think just as I was reading in grad school and my first few years as a professor and reading more about racial history and, and theories on on how we can deal with it, I just sort of came to the conclusion that, uh, I came to the conclusion, first off, that a lot of the people who are right on race, and this was back in the, uh, when I was reading back in the 1990s or late 2000s, a lot of the reasons I write on race were, they were writing as if we were in the middle of the 1960s, and we were having race riots, and we and we still had Jim Crowism, and we and we still had a lot of overt racism. And I realized that they were they were they were trying to address the question, are people of color fully human? I also realized that that question had been addressed, that battle had been won. That while there are people who, who may say we're human and really don't believe it, most people really do. So why was the source of conflict? And that's where I began to realize the source of conflict was not on whether or not it was close human. But what, what are we gonna do to address the problems racism has created throughout our centuries? Because some people say ignore it, some people say be very proactive. And so that's how I got to that, to, to, to think about that as the big question. Because I think that that is the question. that I was writing this book 40 years ago, it probably wouldn't have been what it is today.
0: And what does it look like to begin to, like, wrestle with that question?
1: You know, that's what we have to do with each other. You know, so, uh, so yeah, so you, we talk about something like our residential segregation and, uh, and the fact that white to leave areas where African Americans tend to move into them and the effects that that has on, on the African American family. So how do we, how do we uh, deal with that? Because that's a question that we have to address. What are we going to do about police community relationships? You know, communities of color and the police officers, and, and we know that you know there's tension. How can we improve police community relationships? What are you going to do about curriculum? What's it people call CRT and, and what have you being put in the schools? Uh and other people, other people want the program to put in schools. What are we going to do about that? These are the areas that we need to have a productive, productive dialogue in order to move um, past them. Yeah, and uh, I'm
0: sure. Uh, I know this has been true for me, and I'm sure it's been true for you. Whenever you have those conversations, like sometimes you you start feeling a resistance in yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe uh, you you start getting emotional. What have you learned about whenever you whenever you are feeling that internal resistance in yourself of like, man, I'm I'm not sure what to do, or you just feel you know you feel threatened. Um, you know, mm-hmm. as you were saying, yeah.
1: how do you how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I I am not easily threatened. By ideas. So for me, it's not as hard to deal with. And I've talked to people across the spectrum to have compassion for their position and to feel that sometimes they're right. So so for me, it's not an issue. For other people, <clears throat> we just may, I mean, we may have to just adjust the reality that some people disagree with us. That's okay. We can learn from them. Hopefully, they can learn from us. And I think if people can develop that sort of mentality, I, you know, and I talk in the book about trying to develop a mutual Catholic lifestyle where, uh, and, and one of the tendencies uh, of that lifestyle is to move away from being arrogant in our beliefs, that we know that we're, we're right, in everything. That's just not true in a foreign world. So I think we just have to uh, adjust to that and and, uh, and uh, just realize that we're not always right, and just other people maybe to
0: learn from it. Yeah, have you always have you always been that way, or was there something that helped make you that way?
1: That's an interesting question. Uh, I don't know if, if I've always been this way, but I can't put my finger on on a time when that a light bulb can can came on. I mean, you know, when you, when you're, I mean, I'm looking back to when I was a kid. I mean, when you're a kid, you definitely don't think this way. You think about, you know, you, I mean. It's like the same goes. Like my, my dad was an idiot when I was 15. Amazing how smart he became time to was 25. You know, I mean he like said you know everything. Uh, so uh and I probably was that way too.
0: Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of stuff, uh, but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we mention?
1: Uh no, I mean, I other than say that, you know, this is a process that I'm on and path that I'm on and and if any of your listeners want to uh, to help in the path, in the path, I, I am trying to establish a program at Baylor University for climate Conversations. They could join that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is the path. I think this is the right path and this a slow path. And so people are willing to work with me to help move down this path. I certainly would welcome. Yeah. I guess the last thing I
0: want to ask you is, what helps you remain encouraged? You know, we've we've talked so much about um like this is this is a long haul journey this mm-hmm. is a long like it's not going to be something that's you know fixed even in, even in five years probably right. um but h- what helps you may remain encouraged in spite of in spite of all of that
1: yeah, you know sometimes it's hard to be encouraged, but I think that first you know my, my Christian phase I think that's gonna win out second, I do think that you know there are people more and more, more people who are uncomfortable with effects of racism uncomfortable with what they see as anti-racism and so those are people that i think can be brought into this process so i think that there's a lot of people out there they just don't have a voice right and i'll be eager to see what happens when the book comes out if i can be a little bit of a voice them. yeah
0: uh i actually thought of one one more and unless uh unless you spark something else i me, this will be the last question yeah. <laughs> um and in, in your pursuit of all of these conversations and in the pursuit of your work, and I know this is a big question, so I won't, uh, you know, hold you to it. I know there's a lot of answers, mm-hmm. um, but what have you learned about God?
1: You know, uh, I think one thing I've learned about God in doing all this is that God has purposes and plans for you, because I really, at this point in my life, wasn't planning on talking about racial issues. I've done, i had done my stuff for ten years ago, I was planning on talking about other things, but. You know the things God does in your life; He, he really has a forward vision vision beyond your own immediate reach. And uh, things that have happened in my life, you know, before you know, in before time when I was dealing with racial issues, and even in in immediate time when I was not, really still impact me greatly. So it's hard to underestimate just how much vision God has. If that is, I don't think I don't think He can. You know, I don't think you can measure how much vision that has towards us if things that happening today on 10, 20 years from now. Uh,
0: I guess I got I to gotta ask, and I'll stop saying this is the last question, um, but uh, what made you come back and go like, hey, I, I need to return to this work and write something new?
1: Yeah. I think, you know, 2020 was a big year and, you know, a lot of people were really looking towards, I mean, a lot of people found my, 2006 book and so and i was and i was looking out there i was like man i wrote the book in 2006 and they still are not doing this so so i figured you know it's time to write out the book and really start pushing these ideas because i you know i'm disheartened when i see what we are trying to do that's not working i know it's not going to work
0: well george i know that people are going to want to pick up your book beyond racial division and continue to learn from you where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things
1: uh, I mean, they can go to IB Press. They'll sell it, of course, Amazon. Uh, I will also book my website if you want to find out more about what's happening. with uh, with an
0: E. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll link to all that stuff in, in the show notes, too, for people. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast, and thank you so much for doing the work.
1: Thank you. God bless.
0: Okay, so I think coming out of that conversation with George... One of my biggest takeaways, and I, you know, I, I talked about it in a little bit of the the intro as well, is uh, is his alternative to anti racism and realizing that um, that that is not uh, complete or that that might not be the best approach. But what he talks about is mutual accountability in it, and so I think just that idea of of understanding that it, it is going to take all of us. And it's not the, like the oppression of one group of people over another group of people, no matter who is on top or who is on bottom, that is not the solution to it. But How can we enter into relationship with each other with that mutual accountability and that mutual, um, that mutual love as well. And so that's one of the big ideas that I think, uh, really got me, um, just thinking and really challenged me as well. And so if you enjoyed this conversation, check out George's work, you know, we're going to link to all of that in the show notes. And, uh, if you took away, uh, something meaningful, I would love to hear from you or just anything that you're learning from in general, or if, uh, if you have something that you want us to cover on the podcast or someone that you would love us um, to talk to, reach out to me at learners corner podcast at gmail.com you know, and if you're loving what we're doing here, subscribe to my newsletter. And I recommend a lot of uh, resources and some of the things that I'm learning from as well. And so if you're like, man, I uh, am really wanting to, you know, find new podcasts, find new books, find new YouTube videos, literally um, anything like that, you know, just hit me up uh, and I'll link to the, um, where you can sign up for my newsletter as well. And, you know, that drops about Every week or so, and I'm giving you, you know, two or three of the best things that I've learned from in the past week. And yeah, I think also if uh, you know, rate, review, subscribe, all of that stuff. That would mean a lot. Uh, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say uh thank you to Sam Massey for doing the editing, or not for doing the editing, for doing the music on this podcast. Uh, thank you to Garrett Oler for doing the uh editing on this podcast and uh you know Garrett is going to uh stop uh you know he's going to stop doing the editing on this podcast and I'm just so grateful um for him just because of not because of anything you know bad but just because of of life and so Garrett I'm so thankful for you and I'm thankful for um your friendship you have helped the learners corner become better than um than it was before. And I'm just very appreciative and grateful for you. And so that means that I'm going to be taking up the editing for the, for the podcast. Uh, and so, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But anyway, thanks Garrett for all the work that you've done. And I, I greatly appreciate you and your help on the learner's corner and your friendship as well. Thanks also to George for being on the podcast. And thank you, the listener, of course, as always, for listening to the podcast and listening all the way to the end of the podcast. That's all that I have for you today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.